Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. For hundreds of years, we've been practicing a protracted process of ecological suicide, rapaciously and insouciantly plundering our environment as if we are not dependent on our environment, but rather exist outside of it. Yet environmental health and public health are inseparable. More than 75% of known viruses derived from wildlife and zoonotic infections have quadrupled in the past 50 years and have been the cause of major outbreaks. Anthropogenic climate change has caused a greater incidence of waterborne and vector-borne diseases through increases in precipitation and temperature in certain areas, increasing both the viral reproduction rate and the seasonality and distribution of vectors, for instance, ticks and mosquitoes. Climate change is exposing an additional 500 million people globally to mosquito-borne disease. Urbanization, deforestation, habitat destruction, agricultural intensification, and loss of biodiversity have provided new pathways for zoonotic disease emergence. Environmental policy is inseparable from and must inform public health to avoid disease emergence and spread. Pandemics acutely evidence when it's too late that our individual health is dependent on each other. Billions of people globally live in dire conditions. According to the World Health Organization, over 2 billion people lack proper access to sanitation. Weakened immune systems from exposure to pathogens and malnutrition, combined with lack of access to healthcare, ensures the people at the front lines of zoonotic transmission, people who live and work in close proximity to animals, are on the one hand more receptive to infection and on the other not able to be quickly diagnosed. Better living conditions and access to preventative healthcare for all people globally is vital to preventing disease emergence and early disease detection, which in turn prevents pandemics. UC Davis's One Health Institute is working on the front lines of zoonotic disease detection globally in collaboration with scientists from diverse disciplines to find holistic and comprehensive approaches to the complex dynamics of environmental, animal, and human health. I discussed these issues with epidemiology and ecosystem health professor Christine Croyder Johnson, who is the Associate Director of the One Health Institute and Director of its Epicenter for Disease Dynamics PREDICT project, where Chris focuses her research on the epidemiological drivers of zoonotic disease emergence and spread. Welcome to Gravity, Chris. Thank you. May you please provide our audience with a quick summary of the research being conducted and the programs that are being implemented at the One Health Institute of UC Davis, in particular, the PREDICT program. Yes, I would love to. Thank you. Um, so the, the One Health Institute works on a huge variety of issues, um, mostly within the spheres of conservation and global health. Um, and we do everything from very species-specific research for endangered species or species that are at risk of extinction um, to big analytics that, that can inform pandemic preparedness to global health pro uh, projects that are all the way um, all over the world, actually, um, so across the planet. And PREDICT is a great example of that. Um, and I think our work is, uh, we're really happy to traverse the marine system and the terrestrial system. Um, we all truly believe that major advances are only going to be made with consideration of the animal, human, and environmental health perspective. So our unit really effectively brings together um, that one health approach and, and pretty much everything that we do. Um, and I feel um, very lucky actually to work with a group of very talented people um, who, who embody that one health perspective. 
So how many novel viruses has PREDICT found and where are they located? Yeah, so so the PREDICT project has been underway for 10 years. Um, we've just gotten a one-year extension that, that USAID gave us, mostly in light of the pandemic. We, we actually were extended further. Um, and over the 10 years, we worked in Latin America um, initially um, and then for a much longer period in Asia and Africa. And um, that PREDICT project was, so PREDICT is part of um, USAID's Emerging Pandemic Threats Program. And so we're one of many projects that USAID um, invests in to be able to strengthen capabilities for emerging disease risk um, in places where they're most likely to emerge. So we worked in what, what are considered hotspots for disease, disease emergence. And um, in partnership with the countries that we worked with, and we did work in almost 35 countries by the by the end, the tally was around that. Um, we discovered um, a, almost 950, so specifically 949 new viruses um, that were detected for the first time as part of our surveillance efforts um, that were implemented by the, um, the teams in these countries. Um, and, and we found them where, wherever we looked, really. I think they were found throughout the scope of, of the project in, in even Latin America and definitely in, throughout Africa and Asia. Mm-hmm. And are there any of the viruses that you've discovered through the PREDICT project that you're paying particular attention to? And if so, why? Yes. Yeah, so, the, so the program was really designed around what we would consider to be pandemic threats. So in particular, we focused on what are called RNA viruses. And this is the type of virus um, it, that are different from DNA viruses. Um, DNA viruses are a huge group of viruses, but they're more stable. RNA viruses tend to mutate very rapidly. And we focused on RNA viruses within specific virus families that we know to be highly zoonotic and have a higher pandemic potential. So these are viruses like the coronavirus um, and influenza viruses, as well as Ebola viruses. So we found um, for example, Ebola viruses are a pretty small family of viruses, um, most of which are zoonotic and cause severe hemorrhagic fever in people. So any of those that we found, whether we were finding ones that had already been recognized, but finding them in a, in a broader range, so look, looking looking for them in the same species, but, but in a different country, um, and, or even we found a new Ebola virus um, called Bumbley virus, that is a new virus within that um, within that Ebola virus family. And um, we do pay particular attention to these viruses that are closely related to viruses that have caused epidemics and severe disease in humans. Mm. So I think it's instructive for our audience to understand how zoonotic infections are transmitted. Um, how does host jumping work? Yeah, so uh, great question. I think um, the best way to describe that is transmission can occur between different species. So for zoonotic infections, we're talking about transmission from an animal to a person by definition. And that can occur wherever there's what we call, what we epidemiologists call effective contact. Um, So basically um, a way to think about that in sort of this um, COVID-19 pandemic era is um, these are situations where we're not effectively socially distancing ourselves from animal hosts. So most of the viruses that we are looking for in the influenza, coronavirus, um, Ebola virus families, these these viruses require pretty close contact with the animal host. Um, They're not very resistant in the environment. Um, They're not, they don't tend to be transmitted by vectors. 
So they need to have um, these sort of close contact interactions. And when those interactions are happening, it's possible for host jumping to occur. Okay. And um, what is, when you said that uh, you, you, you require for these zoonotic infections, um, effective contact, what kind of effective contact do uh, people need to have with these animals? Is it sustained contact? Which humans are most at risk of becoming these initial hosts of animal viruses, both in terms of location and occupation? Yeah, that, I mean, that's such a great question. We could spend probably 20 hours talking about <laughs> all the ways that manifests. But, um, but we think of this, this close contact um, um, basically as enhancing the probability for disease transmission along the lines that um, there's a higher um, rate of exposure, so more, so more contact uh, or of longer duration. So when we think about disease transmission for infectious diseases, we kind of break it down into dose, um, which is the dose of the virus that you get exposed to, the duration of exposure, so how long are you exposed to that, and the frequency of that. I mean, it's really it's really a probability function in much the same way that we're learning with COVID-19. And, and I really, um, if there's one sort of upshot from this, this pandemic, it's that we're really understanding um, it, in very general terms what it takes for emerging infectious diseases and how these diseases manifest in populations and some very um, epidemiologic Sort of terms and 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 aspects of the work that epidemiologists have always done are very much in the public domain now, um, and we think of we think of the spread of COVID nineteen as much the same risk, right? You're not you're not so much at risk of being exposed and being infected with that virus if you're just walking by somebody outside um, and your exposure is is only along the lines of seconds. Um, versus sharing an elevator with that person or sharing a house with that person. And so transmission from animals to people is is really the exact same. So the viruses that we're looking at require a pretty hefty dose and duration of contact. And it's just more likely the more frequent it is. So people that that have animals living in and around their homes, you know, and, and there's a lot of animals that share our um, our habitat with us. They've adapted and they are quite happy to rely on people for shelter and food. And these are, you know, of course, we think of rodents in those circumstances, but there's also bats um, that that have sort of adapted to with, you know, disturbance of their habitat to come and, and live in a close, um, close contact with people. And so um, we can get exposed um, not necessarily always through just touching the animal, but through contact with feces or urine where those viruses are happy to be um, shed and distributed um, in, into the environment. And so when that contacts um, our, our food or, or gets onto surfaces um, that we use heavily, there's opportunities for, for diseases to, to jump species that way. And um, there's also a lot of very close hands-on contact that we have with wildlife. And that's been a big part of the work that I have um, sort of facilitated with, with the PREDICT project and a lot of other colleagues that are doing disease surveillance around the world. Um, and, and it's really to look at, you know, for wildlife, you know, where are people coming into close contact with wildlife beyond just um, where these animals are, are in close habitation with people? 
And, um, and we, we know that people have a, a lot of extensive contact with, uh, with very different, many different wildlife species through hunting and capture and really oftentimes illegal trade of, of wildlife. Um, that fosters a lot of close contact where there's um, live animals, especially that are being sold in markets. And, and that is sort of a unique or, or what we call the perfect epidemiologic setting for viruses to jump between very diverse species that would not normally ever come to come into contact in the wild. And so this is um, this is really a situation where I think humans are most at risk for becoming initial hosts for animal viruses. We have data that show that those activities are especially high risk. Um, we also think that um, these activities um, are causing many species to decline in abundance and even putting them at risk of extinction. Um, but but more importantly, there's there's a common everyday zoonotic risk for people that are engaged in those activities, even if they're not getting a very rare virus that might cause a pandemic. They're exposed to a lot of different zoonotic pathogens, not just viruses, but bacteria and parasites and other things in sort of that everyday situation um, where they have this close contact. And if I could just sum up, I think the close contact in these um these, these live animal um, wildlife settings are especially high risk and, and problematic for three reasons. Um, first of all, in some of these situations, there's many different species um, so that the probability that a virus, a zoonotic virus, is going to be in that setting is just higher because there's so many different species with all the viruses that they bring to that setting. Um, and it's also oftentimes very crowded. So there's always higher rates of transmission in crowder, crowded settings. Um, these animals are often crowded in cages. There's often um, many cages put together. So that just, again, facilitates the probability of transmission. And, um, and oftentimes there's that extremely close contact, not just between the animals in the crowded setting, but between them and us. Um, and, and the spillover from animals to people is, is, is much more likely. Um, you have all the ingredients um, that are in these spaces to really foster and facilitate viruses that are readily mutating anyway in that setting. It's almost sort of a, a gain of function experiment, if you will, um, in the natural world where we put these animals together and, and basically see which viruses are going to mutate the best and which ones um, ha can evolve to, to jump into humans. Hmm. So which species, you mentioned rats and bats, um, and then uh, the fact that we put animals that aren't normally connected in the wild uh, together in crowded conditions uh, for the transmission of these viruses. But which species are the main reservoir species? And what is this spread around the globe? And is climate change impacting their spread? Yeah, I think rodents and bat species have hosted the most zoonotic viruses over time. Um, birds obviously host a lot of zoonotic viruses as well. Um, those tend to be viruses that are transmitted most commonly through vectors. Um, but also primates have shared a, a lot of viruses with people over centuries. And we took a, a close look at um, just among mammals, wild, wild, ma wild terrestrial mammals in particular, um, and we found that of over 5,000 different species, there's 600 species that have been identified um, as a host for a zoonotic virus. And, and definitely primates, bats, and rodents top the list um, in terms of frequency for those species. And you brought up climate change. And I think climate change certainly impacts 
um, virus transmission in two ways. Uh, it, it, it obviously is going to change the distribution of species as species have a niche in a certain climate and certain habitat within that climate. Um, they're going to have to move as as climate changes over time. And we're starting to see with long-term climate shifts, some, some redistribution of species. So the species are going to come into contact with other species and maybe people in a way that they hadn't before. And that sort of fosters the, the likelihood that um, diseases can emerge. Um, but climate is also very influential on the distribution of vectors. So vectors like mosquitoes that transmit things like dengue and Zika virus and viruses that we know are an increasingly bigger problem in regions of the world where they haven't been before is being tied to climate change. So um, as those mosquito vectors are able to overwinter under certain climate conditions that, that hadn't previously fostered overwintering, they're able to maintain disease and perpetuate a disease cycle in communities that hadn't been, um, hadn't been exposed to those viruses before. So habitat destruction and changing weather patterns from climate change are increasing our risk of spillover. Yeah, they're increasing the risk of disease emergence. And it's just it's just a matter of time um, with with those viruses that are emerging and evolving that one of them will will be able to infect people and cause a spillover event like what we have seen. So how does disease spread in wildlife impact the potential for zoonotic transmission and mutation? And is the spread related to anthropogenic environmental stress upon wildlife? Yeah, we have a lot of data gaps in terms of how habitat change um, and, and habitat modification and habitat fragmentation affects disease cycles in wildlife. We know we know that animals have epidemics of disease just like people do. So they have what they have diseases that wax and wane. Um, under different conditions. And and I, I think wildlife health and wildlife disease is in some ways the last frontier. We've, we've come to the point where we've been able to recognize um, different viruses in different hosts, but we are very much at the forefront or the beginning of our understanding in terms of how those diseases sort of function and how they how they change and, and, and how their cycles work in wild animal populations. Um, it's quite likely that that we see spillover events at the sort of highest point of an epidemic in wild animal populations. I mean, again, when you start to think of spillover as a probability um, or a function of probability, um, you can imagine that the more animals that are infected um, and if a few of them are in contact with people, um, the more likely spillover is going to be. So that's where you're going to see um, disease spillover first occurring at that, that period of, of peak prevalence in that reservoir animal population. Um, and so, so we think that habitat change will, will affect um, disease cycles because we know that it affects the distribution of species. So as a species that had been sort of existing in one habitat loses that habitat through that habitat being modified, um, or maybe, you know, the land was changed for agriculture, maybe the land was changed for, you know, development um, or, or location of, of a water resource to be moved. Um, we know that that causes wild animals to, to change in distribution. And some of, the, um, some of the places where they're going to redistribute would be in closer contact with people because we've just gotten so much of the habitat um, that we've claimed for ourselves. And, and just the act of changing distribution as, as a population 
um, that was maybe in one location moves and starts interacting with other other populations, um, they tend to introduce disease. So that tends to cause these spikes um, and epidemics and disease. So we know that's sort of a basic function for disease dynamics, but how that manifests and how that works for the different viruses that we're concerned about um, is, is really a, a big important gap of knowledge that I think um, if we can start to resolve some of these things, we can do a better job at informing how habitat change um, can be risky and how it can be beneficial or how it can be most beneficially done through sort of more comprehensive environmental planning that considers disease and, and, and um, disease risk. Right. So we're losing a whopping 150 species a day across the globe. Uh, and we're also doing this through not only habitat destruction and consequences of climate change, but also deliberate destruction of forest and planting of monocultures. Now, how does this loss of biodiversity, including through the planting of monoculture plantations, such as, say, palm oil, increase uh, spillover risk and disease emergence? Um, yeah, I mean, I think sort of along the lines of, of what I was saying, we still have some gaps in knowledge here. I can tell you what we do know for sure is um, biodiversity can be protective for disease emergence when biodiversity is intact with, you know, in not just intact um, wildlife species, but intact habitat. And, and, and what happens when when habitat is altered is that only the most adaptable species are going to be able to survive that change in habitat. And so what we've seen is, is through some of our work, especially that um, we've just published in the last few months, is that species that are, are sort of undergoing and are threatened because of habitat loss and have developed very adaptable capabilities and are able to, in fact, even increase in abundance um, in situations where we have less biodiversity, um, the, these are species that are more likely to, to have zoonotic viruses. They, they are oftentimes species that have regular close contact with people. Again, these are species that oftentimes share shelter with us and, and share food with us. And, um, and these species um, have a close relationship with people in communities um, because of their adaptability. And, and I think conversely, um, when we think about, you know, monoculture and and um, landscape that has lost inherent diversity, um, what we have are species that that have been sort of residual and and not just um, not just adaptable, but they've increased in abundance. So, for example, um, some of these sort of more nebulous topics are best, I, I think, shown through examples. Um, but we might have um, West Nile virus emerging um, within the United States. And West Nile virus in a very biodiverse setting would find, you know, a couple species that it might um, do really well in, in terms of having a reservoir in a new landscape and being able to replicate and, and find its way um, into mosquitoes. Um, but but in a landscape that's been heavily altered, like the landscape um, in, in the United States, especially the central United States, um, you know, the common crow and other other um, what we call corvid species um, were really good hosts for West Nile virus and also did really well in that type of um, habitat that that 
that had certainly, um, you know, gone to monoculture and gone, gone um, to, to a situation where we have less biodiversity. So now we've got this really common species that's a really good host for West Nile virus that's able to be a reservoir in many different settings to facilitate disease transmission spillover of that virus to people now. Um, even though it's transmitted through a vector, as long as that vector is there and able to share that habitat, we've got a problem. So in a more biodiverse area, uh, area the crow wouldn't wouldn't be so common. It wouldn't it wouldn't have found such a a, a niche in which to flourish. So um, so that's an example. So biodiversity can be quite protective um, for, in in many situations like that. Before, when you were d- discussing our zoonotic transmission, you talked about having diverse animals crowded together being a very uh, receptive environment for um, zoonotic transmission. I just wanted to follow up on that and discuss how human exploitation of animals, including, say, the meat industry, where we put a bunch of livestock together in very crowded conditions that don't have herd immunity, right, because they're cows from different herds that we put together. Um, how can that contribute to spillover? Yeah, so there's so many complex issues. Um, I'll wrap <laughs> into one problem, but I think, uh, so, so livestock are an interesting case. So livestock have a lot of the zoonotic viruses that we look at. Um, the, the zoonotic viruses... Um, that we've counted, you know, throughout history, um, livestock are, are a good reservoir for many of them. And the livestock are super abundant throughout the planet. Um, there's every reason to expect that a lot of the human um, diseases, you know, the diseases that we think are just human infections at this point actually pass through livestock um, at one point or another. Um, and, and people have, through their research, traced back the origins of many human infections to to livestock. So, you know, back back when livestock were first domesticated. I mean, livestock were originally wildlife themselves, right? Mm-hmm. But at some point, they became domesticated, um, and in doing so, um, probably shared viruses with us that we now think of as just human human diseases. But they're also a really good pathway or a pass through um, for amplification of viruses that they're probably getting from wildlife, and we've seen this increasingly. For diseases that that occur um, oftentimes overseas, you know, where we've got viruses that that were originally in one species of of bat, for example, um, but the bats, you know, in close contact with pigs, were able to share virus with pigs that then gave it to people because people have much closer contact with domesticated species. Um, but once those viruses are already very good at host jumping they can jump between multiple species, much like what we're seeing with COVID-19. We know um, it probably came from a bat, but it's also able to infect dogs and cats and other species, not not at a very high level, but it is infectious to other species. Um, And and so um, that's a pretty common feature. And I think when we are considering, um, because I just wanted to speak to the point, um, species that are exploited, so the illegal hunting of wildlife is a special risk because these are wild animals that are brought from areas where they're captured in the wild and put into the trade and and when kept alive can be sort of this package of new viruses that people don't normally come into contact with. And where livestock are in close contact with those animals um, in what we call um, sort of situations where there's less biosecurity, um, there can be a big problem. So in, in the U.S., 
Um, and, and in many countries that I'm more familiar with, um, we have a lot of safety precautions around how we raise livestock. So, so um, I, I was trained as a veterinarian in the U.S. And so as a veterinarian, we had to learn how you prevent disease transmission in livestock, um, whatever the species. There's very, um, there's best practices. There's very um, reinforced and regulated ways where we look at disease transmission and are required to test for diseases and are required to um, to, to house livestock in a certain way to minimize disease transmission within the livestock population, um, as well as you know anything that they might get from outside species. And so, um, so I think that's an important consideration when we think about um, you know the future and and where we have to have an increase in in food production. Um, we need to think about how is that going to work with. Um, with close contact that some species might be having with with wildlife or or under new climate situations or scenarios, um, different species than than they have had contact in with in the past. So I think we all need to evolve our training, and we all need to really think carefully about how we can keep livestock protected um, in a situation where there's increasing demands and where there's probably going to be more contact with wild animals. You mentioned that COVID-19 has infected numerous species. I think the tiger at the Bronx Zoo tested positive for COVID too. Um, Apparently llamas are not uh, responsive to infections or they're immune. What do we know about the origins of COVID-19 and what have we learnt um, from COVID-19 so far about um, how ecological factors may have contributed to uh, mutation and um, what, how it can inform our best practices for the next pandemic? Yeah, I, I mean, COVID-19 is still such a mystery to us. I mean, it's a very new virus to science and, um, and we're still learning a ton. We do have some very good clues based on previous work that has been done. Um, we know that the most closely related virus, um, so, so the virus that causes COVID-19 is, of course, uh, SARS-CoV-2. It is similar to SARS-CoV-1, which was the SARS that, that emerged in 2002, um, but we but we have found viruses in bats that are even more closely related to SARS-CoV-2, which is um, the virus that causes COVID-19. So so we know that bats are are quite likely the ancestral reservoir. So we we know that bats have a lot of different coronaviruses. That that these group of viruses, um, these these viruses circulate very commonly. Um, in bats and and are transmitted between bat populations and there's there's a really rich diversity of coronaviruses in bat species and 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 so I think just in starting to pull together the evidence based on the genetic data we think that um, there's likely sort of a parent virus that is out there that's circulating somewhere in Asia or Southeast Asia in bat populations that sort of gave birth, if you will, to the SARS-CoV-2 virus um, through recombination, which is what these viruses tend to do. Um, But we still need to bring together all those genetic links. Um, I've also seen evidence that there's parts of the genetic code for this virus that maybe came from pangolins or or other intermediate hosts that could have played a role um, in sort of this recombination of events that that produced the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So I think um, we still have a lot to learn. It's going to take time. We oftentimes don't find 
the actual source for the coronavirus until there's many years of work done after an epidemic has occurred. Um, that was certainly the case with the first SARS um, outbreak. Um, so, so that's something that PREDICT is engaged in, as well as we have lots of colleagues um, throughout Asia that are working really hard right now to look at their, their samples that they have already in, in place um, to see if we can piece together some more pieces of this puzzle um, to try to find, you know, what might have been the reservoir, what might have been the intermediate host uh, for this pathogen that's caused the pandemic. Right. So we think it might be the pangolin, but we have data gaps. We have we have data gaps all the way through um, until we find the actual virus in in its natural host reservoir, right. um, which, which is a big surveillance effort. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And you have to, by the way, go back in time. <laughs> yeah. Really well. Yeah. If it is the pangolin, which we, we won't know, but um, that is uh, a very illegally and heavily trafficked animal and um, very close to extinction, is it not? It's endangered quite heavily. Yeah. Yeah. The pangolin trade um, has been massive um, throughout Africa and Asia. And I think there's a lot of close contact there. So the, the genetic evidence um, definitely warrants a close look at that species. And I think you bring up a bigger point. Um, so, so some of the work that we've done recently is to really highlight how synergistic um, some of our actions that have put these species into risk of extinction um, is with our increasing our public health risk. So these things are oftentimes going hand in hand, occurring side by side. Um, we've got um, species that were once abundant that are increasingly um, either habitat is being encroached upon or they're being put into the wildlife trade or wildlife value chain, as sometimes we call it. Um, and, and they're being driven down in numbers. And while they're doing that, um, we're, we're creating this public health risk. And, and our work has really highlighted that these things are co-occurring. We really need new thinking in terms of, um, in terms of how um, people are using wildlife in particular and live wildlife um, in 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 trade for either consumption or for medicine. I, I really believe that um, that this can be done um, in a way that we start to think about it from a, a more risk averse perspective. There are species that are especially high risk for public health. Many of these species are also very, very endangered. Um, and many of the people that are engaged in the trade are some of the most um, the most vulnerable to to disease spillover and zoonotic disease infection, and and may or may not have access to healthcare um, that could be very beneficial for for early detection um, as well as um, control of, of of zoonotic diseases in the in that sort of frontline population. And so I think there there needs to be a revisiting of live wildlife um, and how they're used in these settings. And, and I think the PREDICT project has, has done a lot to, to sort of understand these situations and inform and has worked really closely with governments um, throughout Asia to start to share some of the findings um, around the wildlife trade and what we consider to be high-risk activities. But I hope um, with the pandemic, um, this recent pandemic of COVID-19 that um, we have we have this 
um, transformational moment um, to really rethink the the importance of recognizing that emerging infectious disease risk, n- not just for certainly the global population, but also for people that are working on that, that front line that are very vulnerable to everyday disease transmission. Right. So following on from people at the front lines of zoonotic infection, looking at hi- looking at history, it's, pandemics have always started with the working poor. If you look at cholera epidemics or even uh, the Spanish flu named after Spain as it was the first publicized infection um, and with the king, Alfonso XIII, contracting it, it's believed to have mutated from a benign seasonal flu in those Stygian trenches of World War One, where we had soldiers from all over the world that had no herd immunity to each other's uh, viruses and pathogens and so forth. And then they're in these horrible trenches with all the environmental stress on their immune system and animals about. So we've talked about the stresses that we've imposed on wildlife and how this can um, contribute to the spread of zoonotic infection. But what about the significance of the overall help of the people at the front lines? Is their overall health and and having access to proper health care vital in the prevention and mutation of zoonotic infections. I mean, you you put it really well, um, just in everything that you said, Alexandra. I think um, it's it's the people on the on the front line. It's the people most vulnerable to infection. Um, there's there's you know oftentimes even for livestock, not just wildlife, um, it's the poorest livestock keepers that have the highest burdens of zoonotic disease. And, and it's, it's really at that point of spillover that we need to make sure the healthcare access is strongest, that there's not just your everyday healthcare, um, but there's healthcare for the weird stuff that, that people might get from a, from a wild animal or from a domesticated animal. Um, so it needs to be a very broad thinking approach to disease detection for these populations that are on the front lines. Um, and I think that's that's really important for for pandemic prevention, certainly. Um, and I and I just I couldn't have said it better. Um, and I think I think that that's very forward thinking. So, what are some best practices that we can utilize for humans interacting with uh, wildlife? For instance, humans that live in close proximity with wildlife, or humans that have to work in close proximity with wildlife. What are some best practices so that if an animal is infected, they're not infected from the animal? I mean, it's just along the lines of what we're doing for COVID nineteen right now for disease prevention. So, with wild animals, if possible, keep six feet apart at least. Um, look out for hand hygiene, um, and, and where, where people are often, all of us are living with animals, you know, right here within our houses, we need to be very cognizant of droppings and things like that, that, that actually, um, can transmit disease to us. Um, so just it's general hygienic practices that really, um, reduce infectious disease transmission, regardless, regardless of the disease. Um, and I think that it's really, it's, it really helps us to um, to think through these activities with COVID-19 because it's no different um, with wild animals. We should think of, of wild animals as a, as a potential um, source of infection and, and keep our distance for, for their benefit too, as well as ours. Right. Um, now, I just want to go back to something we were talking about before. We we're talking about habitat destruction and um, how that could uh, potentially lead to 
disease uh, emergence and zoonotic transmission. And I keep thinking of the Nipah virus. Contagion, the, the film that every, everyone's rewatching, was uh, inspired by it. But there have been a few uh, epidemics of it. And um, and it's all re- appears to be related to um, palm oil plantations in um, Southeast Asia. So I, I was just wondering whether we have, I know you said we have um, data gaps, but are there any epidemics where um, we can say that, yes, we've had habitat destruction here and um, this has resulted in this disease and that perhaps the disease has become endemic as well and all because of um, a failure to look at epidemiological effects of um massive construction projects or agricultural projects? Yeah, I mean, I think you picked an example that that is kind of at the top of our heads, not just because of the Contagion movie, but because um, Nipah virus has emerged repeatedly um, in Bangladesh with with annual outbreaks, and it's it's increasingly being shown to occur um, in other countries in the region as well. Um, and, And that is such a good sort of case study because of the bit, the large amount of work that has been done um, by by people in Malaysia and Bangladesh to understand how that disease spillover came about um, and how it was transmitted. And, and of course, Nipah virus first emerged in Malaysia, and there's a bat. It's actually a flying fox, um, Tropus vampirus. Um, that's a near-threatened species, um, and habitat modification has absolutely played a role in redistribution of that species so that those populations are having to move um, locations much like um, in the end of the Contagion movie where the bulldozer knocks down the, the palm tree and the and the bats move to a new location and it happens to be near a pig farm. Um, and then the Nipah virus infected the pigs and then was transmitted um, to people. In, in the real world setting, um, it was pig farmers, again, people um, that, are, that are on the front lines that got infected. Um, in Bangladesh, there's a whole different... Um, emergence of that virus that that has a different spillover mechanism. It's slightly different virus. Um, again, the flying fox reservoir, but in these cases, um, it's it's flying foxes that are contaminating um, palm tree sap. So sap that's collected, that's kind of a delicacy in parts of Bangladesh um, that's consumed by people and and the, the bats actually they like the sap as well. And when they go to feed on the sap. Um, they can urinate and, and contaminate the palm sap that's collected. And so they've actually very successfully, um, in some situations, been able to decrease the likelihood of spillover by creating these exclusionary devices that actually exclude the bat from the palm sap collector. Um, and that's a, that's a success story in many, in many cases. Um, but there still is ongoing epidemics in the region. And so I think having, um, having cases like that really highlight Um, But there's, like I said, a large amount of work that has to be done to piece all that together. Um, We certainly know about outbreaks of um, rodent-borne diseases. So, for example, Machupo virus that causes Bolivian hemorrhagic fever um, happens when the Vesper mouse redistributes, um, oftentimes in marginal habitat. So if that forest is cleared, um, that people will will have increasing interaction with that that mouse species that carries that um, that deadly virus. Similar things happen with hantavirus in the U.S. Um, when there's habitat modification that can spur these disease cycles um, and increased um, close contact with people in and around our dwellings. 
um, forest destruction was was linked to um, to some of the events that have transpired, causing Ebola viruses to emerge um, and cause an outbreak. Um, certainly in primates, which are an intermediate host for that virus, um, bats are probably the original reservoir, but um, but but primates can get that virus um, and transmit that readily onto humans um, and, and cause epidemics for Ebola. And so there's certainly um, these these excellent case stories that are good examples. But I would argue, um, kind of back to our our previous point, um, it's humans on the front lines in the wildlife trade. Um, livestock keepers, but also people living um, in these marginalized habitats where these wild animals um, are accommodating some kind of habitat change, um, where there's spillover that's happening more commonly than 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 is certainly realized. I, I fear um, that we only see spillover events once enough people are infected um, or people start to go to a clinic um, and then and the healthcare workers are infected, where things start to get recognized and diagnosed. I think there's there's a high amount of spillover occurring in these marginalized areas um, where where it's it's just not recognized. So I think we need to improve our ability to do um, better disease detection on the wildlife side, certainly to fill those gaps, but in the people um, that are that are more than more likely exposed than we realize. To viruses, including novel viruses that we have yet to to detect. Right. So, if if people at the front lines had better health care and um, even preventative health care, and if perhaps they had better living conditions, then the chance of a disease uh, mutating and spreading and causing a pandemic might be severely limited. Is that? Right. Yeah, I think I think that while the, the the disease or the virus might have mutated, we would we would be able to detect it that much sooner. And early detection literally saves lives for people that are exposed first and for the rest of the people that are going to be exposed later. So I think um, early detection, improved health care is is a pandemic prevention and, a, and an important um, important mechanism for us to to be able to minimize everyone's risk. Right. Prevention is quicker and less painful than a cure, and we're only as strong as our weakest link, right? (laughs) Um, I've been thinking a lot about um, environmental policy and epidemiology because living in California, and of course you live in California too, so we've had, uh, you know, horrible fires where we're wearing face masks, right? And then um, just a few months ago, uh, Australia had Stygian fires and um, we were very concerned for our friends and relatives, people escaping fires and everyone's wearing face masks. And and now, and then there was a pandemic and we're wearing face masks and we think they're unrelated, but it seems that um, they're very related. How we approach our uh, economic policy, how we approach our public health policy, how we approach other policies aside from epidemiology and virology are really connected and that perhaps uh, what we need is a more holistic approach. We're approaching public health, urban policy, environmental policy, epidemiology, and virology in a way that is unified. Um, just as, for instance, I guess, the One Health Institute, One Health, right? It's um, we need to have a more unified vision for um, social policy, I suppose, to um, prevent a future pandemic. Is that is that your view as well? That we need a more holistic approach? 
Absolutely. I mean, you very well described the One Health approach. And and the One Health approach embodies exactly um, sort of the preventive thinking that needs to happen to prevent um, human consequences um, and, and improve human well-being um, as a result of all of those things, whether it's pandemic risk or regular everyday zoonotic disease emergence or risk from, from fires. I mean, we don't want to be a society where we just, you know, every day wake up, don your mask for, for one reason or another. Um, and I think we really need to understand how tied our own human well-being, how dependent we are on in, on the environment. And I think that environmental health and environmental policy um, has had a bit of a blind spot when it comes to um, infectious disease. I think I think the the wildfires. It's a little easier to see how um, change in landscape um, and different you know ways that we handle um, you know or, or, or keep forests and 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 certainly the effect of climate um, is pretty obvious on fires. Um, but but it's also quite true. Um, all those things are, are similarly true for, for infectious disease and, and, and disease emergence. So we, we know that pandemic risk is linked to habitat loss. We know that, um, that public health is an environmental issue. And, um, and just the sooner we connect all those dots, the better. Yeah, we need a synergistic approach, as you were saying um, before. So um, in practice, however, how does epidemiology or how should epidemiology inform environmental policy? For instance, when we have environmental impact assessments, uh, I don't think that we usually have an epidemiologist provide um, their review. Should we uh, change environmental impact assessments of large uh, construction and agricultural uh, projects that currently have to have environmental impact assessments um, have epidemiological review or uh, otherwise, how should we in practice um, inform environmental policy with epidemiology? just has to span the entire spectrum of, um, of sort of the issue as, you, as you've put it. So I think we need to consider um, infectious disease risk and, and epidemiologists are certainly skilled at that. Um, but we need to think about um, when we're talking about environmental impact and 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 big landscape change, we need to think about, you know, the impact on wildlife. So we probably need some wildlife specialists in there as well, because we know um, infectious disease um, spillover is happening from wild animals in particular. So I think you need sort of that broader um, based sort of expertise to to inform on, on what's likely to happen. And, and if we can integrate these they're not even really specialties, you know, these, this is some pretty basic knowledge um, that we can include into our environmental planning. Um, I think we can, we can start to inform. We also need to, like I've said, um, gather more, more information. And, and I don't want to always say, you know, we need more science, um, but we definitely need science all along the way. So we need, we need to be constantly looking out for um, how these changes are manifesting and learning from each other, just like I'm hoping countries are learning from the best practices in the pandemic and what has really worked well. Um, we need to do that for each other in the realm of environmental change and, and disease emergence. And, and I think also, whether it's the epidemiologist or the public health official, um, if the landscape change and there's likely to be these disease emergence, really bolstering that healthcare access in those settings is going to be essential um, so that you can have detection and so you can have actually the information and the science behind 
what is working well and what isn't working well. Right. And so what are the most important next steps in epidemiology and virology with respect to zoonotic infections? So epidemiologists and virologists already work very closely together. I think bridging the animal sort of human um, health um, spheres also is, is happening really well. We need to ourselves work more closely with environmental specialists and really bring in um, not just, um, you know, landscape, but also climate and all the other features of the environment that are going to drive disease emergence and, and have have these things happen more commonly. So I think um, I, I think that synergy is going to be really important to head off pandemics. And and most importantly, we need to do this collaboratively across countries. So we need this international collaboration, coordination, sharing of findings, um, transparency more than ever. So, so I think scientists already really like to work well across borders. We already naturally do that. We just need politics to not please get in the way of that. Um, we're very happy to share our findings. And, and these scientists um, that are working internationally, they're our surge army. They're the ones who are going to be, you know, capable of doing early detection and early share, early early um, sharing of, of of important findings. And so I think um, that that in, that international collaboration um, needs to be facilitated, supported, um, and and that will help bring everybody up. Thank you so much. Chris, for your time and your invaluable insight into this really pertinent issue. Yeah, you you asked some fantastic questions. I'm really excited to be part of this podcast. I think um, I think you did an amazing job of just honing in on the really important issues. I mean, we're all doing this work because we feel like change is needed. Um, that that um, that we want to minimize everybody's risk, and and I think the science behind. This um, is, is it's definitely a defining moment for One Health, um, but the science behind working more collaboratively and bringing in different disciplines, um, I think, has never, never been better evidenced as now. Well, let's hope it stays that way. <laughs> right on. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.